Mike and me have just spent almost one and a half hours speaking about, or perhaps opening up to essence. Um, I've had COVID and we touch on that. We touch on the fear of death, the very physical fear of death that I experienced for a brief moment um, on the eighth day of my COVID journey. And then there's a lot of this thing of, of observing this is my best friend, I usually say, the little observer that observes me so that I experience everything I experience and I also observe it. And Mike helped me connect a few dots to see the growth of, of this aspect of me in my life that I hadn't really thought about before. But yeah, getting to know yourself getting to know me is one of the things that I have quite deliberately created a pattern a habit of, of doing I am curious about me and about others because a lot of the time is I learn about me when I learn about others in interaction so we go kind of all over the place. We do a lot of talk about eye surgery as well because Micah has just gotten out of eye surgery with amazing results. She sees really, really well uh, now. So join us and let me know what pops up for you. What resonates? What makes you go, uh-uh, I don't believe a word of that. Or, oh my goodness, yes, you could be describing me and my experience. Let me know. Bye. Thirty minutes in the garden. I had oh. a, I had an early morning Zoom session with Dominic for one and a half hours, and then I'd cancel the next meeting, or rather pushed it to next Friday. And but I had to prepare for the one o'clock meeting. Oh goodness! And then when the one o'clock meeting was done, a little bit early because I got a lot of work to do from that meeting. I was like. No, I have Beverly and then I have problem solvers at seven. Then I went outside, so I sat down in the sun, enjoying myself, realizing, oh, in between you and problem solvers, I have a coach walk with a client. So it's one of those days. I'm not sure I'll make the problem solvers meeting tonight, actually. I just That's... might not do it. It's so packed. Yeah. I've found that maybe it's the fact that I've just gotten older. I need some cushion 
around meetings so that my brain has time to switch. I, I just can't, especially on Zoom. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know. I, I think I have a capacity to switch. That works for me. But it's like, you know, it, it does decrease the battery um, you know, level, most definitely. And if I have a couple of these days in a row, you know, it's not enough to recharge over the night, not by far. Um, so I was, you know, I was kind of happy that I canceled the other meeting this morning. I did that last night, just thinking, no, that's not a good idea. Um, so... But it's, I, I think for me, one of the things that makes this work is that it is so diverse. So it's not, it's not like project meeting upon project meeting upon project meeting within the same project. It is, yeah. this is a session. Now we're recording a podcast. Then I'll be out for a walk with a coach client. And the one o'clock was a, was another client where we do quality work. So it's like, so it's, it's, it's big enough jumps, if that makes sense, to, to kind of bring me some freshness. Um, if it's day the in. same day, you know, it's like five same meetings in a day or same-ish, that's trickier, I find. Yeah, I can see where going to a new meeting that has no baggage, you know, it's not carrying any energetic fluff, no dust bunnies. <laughs> Even though if you were to look at my house, you'd see there's plenty of dust bunnies. They are way bigger than, than we call them damrotta, so we call them dust rats in Sweden. <laughs> Around here, they're very huge dust elephants, but <laughs> well, you know, whatever. We like to be inclusive, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, how are you? What's going on in your life? I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Most of my projects right now are involved around organizing, either. Mm -hmm in my house, which needs massive organizational help. And also at work, um, last, in fact, a week ago, I got a surprise project, which is quite large. It grew out of something else that I'm doing, but may involve, you know how sometimes when a house is, is kind of rickety. It's because the foundation isn't solid and you have to go actually underneath it and build it back up. That's kind of what I'm doing <laughs> to our mm -hmm. curriculum. And it's because the, uh, the overall curricular objectives were not really created in a way that allows them to truly define what it is we want our students to do at the end. So it 
it's not that they weren't pointed in the right direction, they just don't define it all the way. So I'm, I've been looking at how other schools define theirs, and I had an idea coming in that there, there are three overall domains of function that we can define that have interlocking skills and that there may be a way to do that. And the reason that any of this becomes important is that those objectives are what our competencies or what we tell the students is is expected of them are defined. So we, you know, we need to get this right. If, you know, if the stairs are not going to fall down, what's underneath them has to be built Solid. correctly. Mm-hmm. So we... We, we just have some holes in our scaffolding right now. <laughs> and I think part of what we need to do that is somewhat separate from and also integrated into, contradictory, I know, the instruction is to create um, what the our licensing body wants, which is a basically a taggable structure. You have to be able to say that this session in a course meets these competencies by measuring them this way. And that's, it's dull as dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I was getting worried there for a bit. (laughs) Because that that has nothing to do with the content. You know, it, but it 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 shows them because they license us that we are paying attention to what it is eventually the body that licenses the students to practice um, that we are paying attention to the things that are expected of them in the professional sphere from the beginning. So that's. That's this huge project I've been handled it, and some of it is like, oh my god, this this feels like, you know, painting the handrails on the Titanic <laughs> while it's sinking, <laughs> yeah. while it's sinking, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and on the other hand, there's the chance that this actually makes the things that we ask faculty and students to do easier because it is better defined and it is more clearly tagged to mission, which I think we often forget in the weeds of, oh, I got to teach that session and I got to make this lecture and I have to do that exam. And It's, it's, you know, it's like I have, I spent 2012, 13 to 16 immersed in the Swedish school debate. And a couple of years before that, immersed in the local, you know, parent-teacher association and, and, and stuff like that. So education, like, like school formal education is so interesting um 
And somehow, going into it, the more I read, the more I learn, the less impressed I am, the less enamored I am, the more I think, oh, what the heck is this good for? What's the point? What's the purpose? Why school? Yeah. I, I, in terms of general education, I, I see that I'm, um, two people that I've read pretty extensively are Rafe Esquith, who was a teacher in the LA schools program, and Ken Robinson, whose yeah, work I've read I love. a couple of, I've read a couple of his books too. Yeah. And, in terms of educating young kids and allowing them to find the skills that speak most to them, I think less regimentation is is really helpful. Um, I so there's that, and I I think even to some extent in college, pulling back on some of all the rulemaking. And letting kids drift between fields, because you never know. It's like, yeah, you know, combining music with architectural design could be really fun. You know, things, or, you know, the engineering and pottery, whatever. Mm. When it comes to professional training programs, there's there's a different level of what needs to happen. So if you're a law school, you have to have students who come out knowing the law well enough to practice it in a professional capacity for clients who expect them to be able to, you know, help them write a contract or be defended in court in that that because that's pointed toward outside rules there are some rules that that then follow and the same thing is true in nursing or pharmacy or medicine because there you literally have people's lives on the line so health professions is another one where some outside structure that helps guide the curriculum is necessary because what the the practice impacts people's lives and and i agree and it's it's like it's the same thing i was speaking to frank last week and um he's an architect by training right and so he went to engineering school and you know there's all of these things about how thick does the wall have to be so it doesn't topple and how much weight can the beam take and you know it's like there's it's as if there's there's givens. There are things that are given that you need to have in place in order to make good stuff, uh, you know. And which is the same kind of with 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 medicine or the health professions, right? There's there's like givens, like where does the heart sit? What does it do? How, you know, how much blood can you let out of a body before it dies? You know, it's like, there's, there's, like you say, there's 
a lot of, of relevant stuff. So, I mean, I would not want to be operated on by somebody who's not gone to medical school. No, right? And, like Sir Kim Robinson points out, it's like we have academialized or intellectualized so many professions, so much that doesn't need to be, that, that are more in the hands. I don't know, gardening, um, you know, fine woodcrafting, or, you know, it's like, it's, it's the practice is so far away from the training yeah, in, in many ways. And, and also in, in Sweden, I think teaching school, going to, to teacher training, teacher college, whatever you'd call it, I think, I think still the first time you're out on, on actual you know, practice out at a school is like year two or later. You know, it's like, what if? You really hate it. <laughs> you know, maybe that would have been good to find out quite early on. It's like there's, there's something that we're losing when we, we make it into, yes, you are eligible to go to teacher college because you have these grades. Yeah, but I hate humans. <laughs> you know, I was like, mm, that would be a problem. <laughs> and you have that in a lot of the, you see that in medicine, Right? You have a lot of people who go to, to medical school because they're interested in the data. You know, they're interested in the research. People, oh my God, do I have to have people around me? You know, it's like, so, so it's like there's two, there's, there's I think what, what you're pointing to that this can give you guys a chance to do is again this to to kind of examine what is it that we're doing and why does it make sense does it serve mm -hmm. the end goal of having students capable of this practice yes or no or maybe <laughs> you know um thinking it through which i you know it's like again i i done this spiel a gazillion time you know schools the way they look now were in, invented or shaped in the mid 1800s in most in in many countries right 1856 i think in sweden and 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 then they asked why school well we need you know for the industrial revolution we have a need of people who can do simple reading writing arithmetics and obey rules okay yeah. let's set it up this way using structures from from like uh monasteries you know you can sit down for 40 minutes and then you have a 15 minute break and then you sit down for another i mean that's like 800 years old or longer you know so kind of picking up on things that were in the in the sphere of this is what we know that it could look like but but since 1856 in sweden nobody has really asked again why school 
You know, we did that 160, 70 years ago. We haven't done it since. The system has evolved, but more because of, oh, we need this too. We need this too. We need this too. And then you're adding in things that you need this thing without realizing it really conflicts with this other thing that's really inside the system. How do we do it? Well, let's just ignore that and carry on. It's like, oh. And then you get this bizarre sort of forward and backward pressure where people are freaking out the minute their kid is born if they can get them into a quality preschool. And the minute they get into elementary school, they're worried about their grades because then they have to get into a college. Like, whoa, dudes, <laughs> what happened to childhood? <laughs> you know, piling on all the extracurriculars so that their kids' up the application to college in 17 years looks good. And it you surround the experience of education with... So much stuff that is really ancillary. And I was relatively lucky. My dad was an educator, so I just, I grew up with the stuff around me. And it was just sort of naturally part of who I was to read and to study and to look at nature and all that kind of stuff. But I... I think it has become too regimented. It has the the loss as as of more and more opportunities for kids to be physically active is really bad. Kids are motion learners. I mean, I'm still a motion learner. When I take a walk in the afternoon, I'm always processing stuff that I've been doing. It's like I didn't do yeah. So it. When you suck all the joy out of it with all of the rules, you've created a system that, as Seth Godin says, I must process you. I must process you. And Ken Robinson says, you know, we process them based on the date of manufacture. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> which, is, which is also, his, his TED Talks are hilarious. Yeah, they are. They're they're amongst the most watched for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, pick five, ten, under 20 people that you know, um, and, and you'll see that processing based on data manufacturing kind of doesn't really make sense. Look at five 16-year-olds. Shit, there can be some like 10-year-olds among them, and there's a couple or at least one that's like 20 plus, you know, emotionally, how they're able to cope and relate and stuff. It's like massive. I mean, look at class photos from, you know, from like ages 12 to 18 and you know you have these teeny tiny little boys next to men and they're born the same year you know it's just 
man, that's, it's, it's a weird setup. It's a weird system. And yeah. segregating, segregating like crazy. <laughs> it's like, have you read, what's his name? Ross Green? Um, I think it's Ross Green. He does, um, he's written about Anknytningsteori in Swedish, like how you connect to people, how you bond to people. So his theory kind of is humans need a range of people that they have connected to emotionally because we need the the difference in in ages in experiences in maturity in in abilities so it's really really dangerous if all of the people that a 12 year old asks for help looks to for you know how do i do this thing oh i'll look at my my friend over here who also happens to be 12 if they just look within their that age group you get some really weird stuff going and people cannot relate to older or younger and they lose it's like you turn one dimensional in how you act because honest to god 12 year olds you know <laughs> they can be a bit shaky. Most of them have their brains starting to melt because they are approaching, you know, puberty. It's like, yeah. that's not really the best to go to for advice if this or that happens, right? So his his stuff is interesting that way. And he points to this, that the segregating of of kids in, in, you know, your age group. And then the loss of the big family. Not a lot of people live with, not a lot of people live with both parents anymore, but, you know, it's like not a lot of people live with uh, grandparents or, you know, you, maybe you don't have any siblings, so you don't have a younger sibling. You know, it's like, so we're, it's it's anorectic in a way. Yeah, that's, I think you're, that's a really interesting point, and I think it's true. Um, I mean, I remember a few things even from when I was a kid that because we moved around a lot, we didn't have a lot of connection to people in my grandfather's generation other than my grandparents. And if you lose the ability that early to speak to those you know, as two generations removed, you're losing a lot of that wisdom. Um, it also reminds me, I have a friend whose mother um, lived, was brought up in, in South Central West Virginia and actually taught at a one-room schoolhouse. Wow. And that model is really interesting for kids' education because all the grades are in one room and the older children help the younger ones. So there's naturally this vertical integration, which yeah. it is another layer of education on top of just the subject matter. Yeah. And, and I mean, that what you're pointing to there is like, 
education where you just, bunny ears, um, learn the subject matter, is again, it's, it's, it's stripped of the importance, the, 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 the vital importance of learning how to be human, right? So if I can learn my subject matter in a way that I know how am I human integrating this knowledge, this specific piece of knowledge about law or about medicine or about whatever, in such a way that I also see how it affects people, how I can relate to people. And it brings to mind, in Sweden, we have what's called architect uppropet, which is um, like, you know, it's like, it's imploring architects to think it all through. Because there was a study done where they see that architects who design these, you know, plastic, metal shopping malls and, and glass facades and, 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 you know, what we, what we here, and I'm sure you too, see in production, you know, facility production today, they produce that stuff for people to live in, for people to work in. But architects in Sweden, most of them, a huge majority of them, live in houses or apartments pre-1900. So they've never lived in one of their own buildings. They don't live there. They don't want to live there. But, you know... It's the sign of the times. This is what it's supposed to be. Yeah, and people are stressed and don't feel good and, you know, lack the sense of place. Um, and it's it's like, that's one of those things. It's like, when architects are in training, how much of the human physiology, how much of the human psychology, how much of, 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 of that vertical stack are they taught to consider when they are acting professionally? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I just finished listening to a book called House Lessons. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, the years this one couple up in the Pacific Northwest spent renovating an old Victorian cottage. And the place... I mean, the they just fell in love with it when they first saw it. It was it was actually just before it came on the market. So they, but they they loved this place. It ended up being an absolute like five or six year labor of love because the I mean again the foundation was literally crumbling. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the process of telling this story, she walks through some of that history of architecture. And one of the really interesting tidbits I got out of that, that Frank Lloyd Wright, an American architect, has made some very famous buildings. Mm -hmm. And some of them are just beautiful. But (laughs) apparently the roofs all leak. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they're they're beautiful pieces of art. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but they but don't work. They they don't necessarily work for the humans living there. And she she gives several examples where famous architects have built homes that they feel very possessive of, but are owned by other people. And the other people have difficulty living there because, you know, the roof leaks, because the chair's in the wrong place to actually do what the person needs to do. And, and some of these architects would go into the houses and move things around when the people weren't there. Because it's supposed to be like this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not an art installation. It's a home. Home, yeah. yeah. So I, I understand that push-pull. It's like, this is my piece of art. It's like, no, it's my house. I would like to sleep <laughs> horizontally on my bed. <laughs> in this position, in this room, <laughs> not over there. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, being human, becoming human, learning how to do human, um, it's like, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted because one part of me says, Everything humans does is what humans does. You know, we are all being human, doing human. And one part of me says, somewhere along the line, it feels like cats are really good at being cats. The blackbird that's nesting in my outhouse is super good at doing blackbird. She knows that role in and out. It's just, she doesn't, you know, there's no doubts, no questions, no concerns. The birch tree really aces being a birch. And somehow I, I, I can't help but feel that a lot of human is lost to us humans. It's like we've lost what it is. And I don't know if it's because we have a culture that doesn't really help us or it's because we have this amazing mind where we can start to question everything (laughs) to the detriment of our own mental well-being that is innate. You know, I, I totally believe we are born with with innate mental health and well-being, you know. It's like, yeah. But somewhere along the line, we start to question. And that, uh, that actually, that realization that having a brain gives you a lot and may take something away, I mean, that goes all the way back to the Bible because Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and that's where all the trouble started. <laughs> it's like, because we know we have the capacity to do things that are amazing and we have the capacity to know that some of the things we do are not amazing and maybe detrimental. And 
it's not that we know stuff that is the problem. It's how we use it. <laughs> Precisely. And this kind of leads me in. I just read the other week Tales of Adam by Daniel Quinn, who is the author of Ishmael, that I've been, you know, reading all sorts of books by him. But that's his point, really, the fact that the culture that almost all of us on earth live in is one where we believe because we know we have the right to make decisions for our good. Yeah. You know? Right? Yeah. And the, the limit on how good that actually is depends on how far ahead we think. Yeah. And, 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 and in a sense, how human we are, right? How, how we see ourselves as, you know, if, if we kind of go along with the story of the Bible of, you know, we're the pinnacle of creation and everything is here for us. It's like, yeah, sure, I'm going to be using that knowledge of good and evil for, for you know, for my sake. And, and, you know, it's like you look at, you look at humans and we want to spray our fields, our monoculture fields with pesticides to kill anything that might nibble at some of it. We want to kill all of the wolves or uh, coyotes or bunnies or what it is because they will steal a couple of my carrots, you know, or, or snag my sheep or whereas like wolves, well, maybe they don't have any, but you know, it's like, there's, there's nothing else in, there's no lion that will say, I'm, I'm going to kill off all of the hyena. Because they come in and, and eat the stuff that I have finished eating and that's not good because it's mine. It's like, no, that won't happen. Yeah. They, and it's not that animal groupings don't have structure. Not they at all. do. They they have structure. They they have rules, which you know, gets passed down, it, it comes pretty close to being a culture with, mostly without artifacts, but they, you know, if you look at elephant societies, that those are long-standing. And they, because animal groupings have somewhat an, they have to have an innate knowledge that if they don't work together, the group will become extinct because the groups that didn't work together are no longer here. That mm-hmm. yeah. humans, and they, they also cooperate with the land around them because that's what feeds them. We're still learning 
or relearning that lesson. This the capacity for large scale, I think, was something we did not use wisely enough. I do not believe that bigger is better. The whole idea of solar farms makes me want to scream. Because, hello, every building we sit in has a roof. Why would you want to destroy more natural ground when you can put it on the roof? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't develop more land to capture solar power. That's what land already does. Put it there on it a freaking roof. <laughs> Stick it in a runway. <laughs> that just makes me so mad. It it reminds me of, I saw this, there's this really fun Danish farmer, uh, Bunderoven, farmer's ass, it actually translates, (laughs) Danish people are funny, but he is just, is amazing, Frank is his name. He has been around the world, you know, learning how to make these funny little boats and Wales or Scotland and and building drums with shamans in Africa and all sorts of things. And he's built his own house and and made, you know, it's like handmade bricks. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's quite amazing. But he had, he was called into a municipality in Denmark to help them develop more um, flora and fauna. You know, it's like, it's dying out. We don't have any insects. There's not enough for them to eat. So they die off and then we don't have pollinated fruit trees. And, you know, it's like... So, yeah, so he was, get rid of lawns, ban insecticides. Yes, don't which screw is up the precisely, water source. <laughs> yeah, precisely. You know, it's like they did these little things and they were helping people, you know, how, you know, come to... This is my place. Okay, well, you know, you can have a lovely little lawn here, but what if you let this part actually grow? You know, it's like small things, but also bigger things. And one of the things they did was in roundabouts, they said, what if we make meadows out of the middle of the roundabouts? You know, we don't have to cut, have cut grass there. And... They did this, and then six or eight weeks later or something, he comes back to town and stands in front of one of these roundabouts talking to people about, you know, what's what do you see? What do you think? And it's so interesting to hear people, because I'm going, oh, it's gorgeous, right? And people say, it looks kind of messy. <laughs> you know, it's not very nice. What will people think when they drive into our town? Um, And I'm just going, man, we see things through completely different glasses, right? We have different lenses on how we look at the world. Um, And he was kind of, you know, you could see that he kind of dropped his jaw when this one older man was just, it looks really bad. You know, it looks, it looks unkept it looks like nobody's maintaining it right that's the point precisely precisely (laughs) that is the point but it's like oh yeah so so this idea we have that 
we are right to make changes in our surroundings for our you know mental peace or whatever it is without any regard to the number of insects or pollinators that can get fed by and you know all of these things it's just it amazes me but yeah that's that's where we're at it around here the summer is is sometimes a reptile war um so i live in the sort of middle midwest of the u.s we have plenty of box turtles we have a few snapping turtles we have that are free they are yeah they're, they're just one yeah yep. and um turtles because we also have roads turtles sometimes get stuck on them and i I'm the person who stops their car to take a turtle to the other side. Um, some people will actually deliberately drive over them, which just... Uh, and snakes are the same way. I, but you can't, you can't do that without causing damage to an ecosystem, especially with snakes, because snakes are predators. And the... Most of the ones that get run over on the road are garter snakes, grass snakes, green snakes, um, little ringnecks, just because they're so pretty. Um, and they, most of what they eat are mice and insects, the yeah. things that we don't really want around either. So, and even, <laughs> so I keep my lawn taller than my neighbors because it, it preserves water. It, makes the grass healthier and it keeps actually keeps down the weeds so I don't use products on my lawn um and and they always think that taller grass means that there's going to be snakes <gasps> snakes and so when my, I was talking to my neighbor a couple of weeks ago a big burly guy and he said do you do you see snakes very often I'm like no I haven't seen one in quite a while last time I remember I saw a baby copperhead once and I could see he's going like yeah it was in the mulch down there so i just picked it up and and put it over the hill where it wasn't gonna <laughs> he's like kind of half laughing because most of the time when people see a snake here it doesn't matter how big it is it's there it's gonna the snake is not gonna come out of that interaction oh, I, yeah. I don't get it yeah, this is their home first and even though i paid money <laughs> For the property, it's Which their is home. Such first. a weird, isn't that <laughs> such a weird thing? Really, it's like I can own land. Really, in yeah, in some ways that is weird. In other ways, I'm kind of glad of it because there's a little piece of the earth I can protect. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. It reminds me of this, um, it's a, I don't, it's not a TED Talk, I think, but it's, it's, a, what's it called? The Elder's Fire or something? Some, some man was, was telling the story of how, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, some, some, you know, 
important VIPs, very important people were speaking to to a Native American chief um, or shaman or, you know, someone with deep sense of grounding and, and sort of being with all that is about what can we do to, you know, to save the world? What can we do to make it better? What can we do to make sure that we, we, we last? And he was saying that, I won't tell you because you won't be able to cope with it. And they were like adamant, no, 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 please tell us, please tell us. And he was saying, no, you won't because you won't. And eventually he relented and said, you need to fill in all of the holes. All of the holes you've made on earth, you need to fill them in. And, you know, just think about that. This is a house. It, there's a hole underneath it. Every house mostly has a hole dug up soil, right? All of the mines, um, artificial dams, you know, it's just... So, yeah, they kind of went, all of them? (laughs) 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 You know, it's like, could we start with this little one? I can build, you know, I can fill up the hole in my garden, maybe. Um, But it's like, it's one of those, it just... I remember this. I probably saw this thing 10 years ago, but I still remember... I still remember and kind of can feel into what I sensed when I heard him say, you need to fill in the holes because they're not yours to, you know, they're not yours to dig, kind of. You know, not in this excessive way that we're doing it. Um, And it just, yeah, it baffled me. Yeah, there's a... It is one of the Native American traditions that when you do something, you're supposed to think forward seven generations to what the the outcome might be before you take take it up. Because if if it's not good out that far, then you should not do that. So it that long term thinking pulls back some of that, you know, the quick profit, that kind of, you know, do it for now and, and screw the future kind of ideas. If, if, you're not, if you're not doing it for now, you do not go and screw up the Alaskan tundra. If you're not doing it for right now, you do not build a pipeline that will only be serviceable for 10 years. Yeah. So if you think farther ahead, some of this, you know, so it's not about quick profits. It's not about what can I make in the next week. It's not about manipulating the markets to make a windfall now and not caring what it does to people later. It it changes the game. I just read a book not quite on the same stuff, but it's called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And he's talking about um, more corporate culture. Um, but he was saying, you know, the finite game is 
we want to be the best. Well, the best when and at what? You know, that, that has an end point. Mm-hmm. If, you know, once you're the best, then what? Mm-hmm. Then you're just staying in the same place. If you have a broader view, we want to help people express themselves in the outdoors in taking care of both humanity and nature that says you have a mission going forward no matter how much money you're making or what other people think of your products so it changes the game and i there's there's some stuff in there that is like it's it's a little male centric and all that kind of stuff but it the idea that we should not be playing for the next 10 minutes does resonate for me. Oh. And I mean, that's, that's kind of... <laughs> I, I finished reading last week Daniel Quinn's kind of the book where he tries to explain how how he thinks. Um, so it's called When They Give You Lined Paper Right Sideways, <laughs> <laughs> which is spot on. So in it, he's, he's in conversation with a lady, and, and it is an actual conversation. Somebody, a lady, you know, called him up and said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in finding out how you come to your ideas. How, what's the process? How can you do what you do? And, and he says, you know, come here for a long weekend, but I'll be recording it and we'll see if we can make this into a book. And she says, yeah, sure, fine. And it's, talk about male-centric. It's, it's not, but... His um, insufferable white male nest, <laughs> let's put it that way, you know, is 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 very apparent. And Elaine, which is the woman, her insufferable white femaleness is as apparent. So she is excusing herself constantly saying, oh, no, I don't know. Oh, I'm so sorry. My brain just doesn't work. I don't know. I wouldn't be know how to begin. You probably think like this. And he goes bonkers, you know, telling her off, trying to raise her in a sense, you know, trying to parent her into getting away from this. And it, it kind of, it, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable reading it. Um while at the same time the actual context or content is just gold. It is absolute gold. And you're actually, he does give you, or me as a reader, insights into what's his ability. How is it that he does it? I mean, he's like, he's an expert at zooming out. So like, we're in the culture. Here's what the culture thinks. What are the assumptions of that culture? What's the assumption behind these things? So he kind of zooms out, looking at it from the outside and just does that brilliantly. But 
come, you know, two thirds in when she again for the umpteenth time says, I'm sorry, I'm so dumb, I just don't know. He just goes ballistic, telling her off, saying, you have to stop doing this, you know, stop apologizing. You are here because, you know, this is, you're here to think. Don't apologize for thinking, right? And you're not here to think like me because you're somebody else. You're here to learn how you can think differently, right? When Elaine says, I'm sorry, <laughs> And then moves on. And it just goes, oh, God. Um, but it's, it's, it's an amazing book in that it, it, it's Tankespian, you know. Man, it's Tankespian to just, how does he? And he, he has this ability, you know. If there's a, a question, implied in questions are so many assumptions and I've never, you know, I've, I've not been able to pay attention or pick up on that in, in, in cognitive ways. Let's put it that way. Perhaps intuitively or, you know, you can sense, oh, something is off here, but not, not something that I could touch. Um, and so... Reading that book, reading all of the, the Daniel Quinn's books that I've been reading for the past six months and, and like conversations with you and the others in the podcast, conversations in the creative community, conversations with Dominic, my sessions with Dominic, um, the Buddhas by the roadside conversations that we're having, you know, all of this has just given me this massive insight that hit me properly last week. It's like context is king. You know, it's like where I come from, what's the premise? Why is this question relevant? Because of the context I'm in, you know, do I want to answer it from within that context or do I want to zoom out and say, hey, what's implied here? Um, and, and in one of the Buddha's episode that we recorded in, I think in August or something, Caspian had brought the 12 questions or something that Tim Ferriss uses in his podcast. And I think in his book of Titans, whatever it's called, um, maybe the book of Titans. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I'm gay. And Dominic, he's being what he is, which is a difficult bastard now and again, not because he wants to be difficult, because he, because he also, you know, he also zooms out. He's, he's taught himself how to do that. He's trained to do this. So he's, you know, there's a question that Tim Ferriss asks, you know, if you could put up a message on billboards all across the world, what would you say? And I'm going, this. And Dominic is asking, what's implied in that question? You know, what's, what's again, human-centric? You know, it's like, is there one right thing? You know, it's like there's so much when you just start to, um, you know, peel at it. And I'm going, oh, shit. 
Um, <laughs> like, hey, this billboard should not be here. <laughs> yeah, precisely. You know, it's like, should you have bill? You know, there's so much. You could do so much with this thing. And I'm just going, okay, I'm like a puppy. I want to play. You know, I want this message. Um, and that was one of those episodes that was mind-blowing and hard as shit to, to, to do. And I think one of the kind of one of the stepping stones that I've needed to come now to this point where I say, I am finally starting to get context. I'm finally seeing the importance of who's saying something. Where are they saying it? How are they saying it? What's their age, gender, race, position in life? You know. There's so much um, that is kind of behind what you see, right? Yeah. It's just super interesting. And then all of a sudden, I mean, I'm like, I can't read a book without thinking. Because that's the, I have been, and, and this was apparent in the, um, when we had the creative community book club on Ishmael, somebody picked up on just that fact that the way Daniel Quinn writes, you can, you know, patriarchal, you know, it's like going a little bit crazy about those aspects of it. And they had just, you know, basically just, I hadn't picked up on it. I hadn't seen it. A little bit of the irony and stuff is like, uh, that's unnecessary. But, but now somebody has told me about it. I can't not see it, right? And, and context for me has now gotten to be this thing. It's like, now I can't not see it. Now I can't stop asking, why are they writing this? What is it that they want to bring forth? What's the message? What's the assumptions behind the message? You know, who's worthy, who's not worthy? Who's to be blamed? Who's not to be blamed? Is it a victim uh, perpetrator role? You know, it's like, oh, man, my mind is blown. Yeah, I, I think context is important. <clears throat> the way, you know, Machiavelli wrote millennia ago. You know, it's, you, we can't expect him to have presented his work as if the internet existed or even women's rights. <laughs> so in understanding people for their time, I think is important. You can recognize the fact that they may have done things that we would not do now and that maybe they would not do now. You know, like Jefferson was a slaveholder. And yet he's revered for a lot of the good work he did do. And understanding that people are both products of their time and that even people who did things we don't approve of now did some things that were good. Mm -hmm. You know, he, no human is perfect and expecting perfection out of any of us is bound to be a losing game. Talk about a finite game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, 
you know, there's 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 a lot of turmoil right now in the U.S. trying to come to terms with some of the things that were done to people of African descent, to, to the Native Americans, and and many of those things were truly horrible. You know, some of them are still happening, and it's awful. I, I don't think we should just erase anyone from our history who did those things, because you, you literally do not want to forget that that's possible. You just, you don't want it happening again, but you can't, you can't cut the foundation out from under a house and expect it to stand. You have to remember. You know, changing the way you commemorate those people, I can understand that, but you can't cut them out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. When I was sitting out in the sun, I was reading... Oh, Cast. By Isabel Wilkerson. Um, and it's 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 like you say it's just uh, there's a lot of, of stuff in this book that just makes me go what now <laughs> yeah it's, it's like don't. in 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 I mean there's the horrors that you know the things we can do to other people which had me crying my eyes off when I was watching. What was the, what was the name about, of the movie uh, on Alan Turing that was released four or oh, six years um, ago? It's also something with game, wasn't it? Uh, well, I, I don't remember the name of it, but yeah. I mean, he it's was... a great movie. It's a great movie. I was watching it with two friends, and come the end, and the and the you know the the text at the end of the movie, I'm crying hysterically in the cinema, just so um, so attuned to the things that we can do to each other. The yeah. things that aren't, the, the horrible things that we can do to each other. It's like, how can we do this to others? And that's the horrors of this book gives, you know, it's like that's, that's the sensation I get. And then there's kind of the facts that just makes me go. It's like, no, no wonder it's a screwed up world, right? It's like no wonder when when this is the way we do things. Um, yeah, yeah. The, um, there, yeah. There were things that, and the focus tends to be on slavery, which was god awful. But some of the things done after emancipation weren't no better. That's when we started getting um, structural racism so that literally societies were built in such a way that persons of other races could not get a home, start a business, live their lives. And that's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. 
They, they, I just read, a, you know, a couple of pages ago about, I think it was called Prince Edward County in Virginia or somewhere, where in, I don't know, 1956, um, when the, uh, the, the Supreme Court verdict on you, you cannot have segregated schools came into, into effect. Yeah, Brown versus Board of, Board of Ed. That's the one. Yeah, I had Roe versus Wade in my head. And it's like, that's not the one. No. <laughs> I knew that one. <laughs> uh, but that county closed all public schools for five years because they would not not segregate. So white people were... You know, they could take the money in the educational system and, and set up private schools that could have different rules. And and black people were left to, you know, do whatever you want. You won't get any money from us. You won't get any help from us. You know, you still have to go to work and, you know. And it just, you know, it just baffled me. You know. Yeah. It's like, how we do you so act? do not want this? That will 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 just close schools. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it unreal that people can be so vicious. Yeah. Yeah. And and so. Here's one of the things that I'm I'm noodling after having read Ishmael and all of those other Quinn books is law, where law as we see it tells you basically what you must not do. You know, you must not murder, you must not you know, steal, you must not be an adulterer, you must not, and you must not. And, you know, there's a lot of law that tells you, or rather, if you do this thing, we have laws that says, okay, you need to go to jail for this long, or you need to be fined this much, or, you know. Whereas tribal law, you know, has the same human material to work with. And people can be the most, you know, happy geezers and vicious as fuck and, you know, impatient or erratic, you know. We can be all of that and we will be all of that and we will do wrong. We will do things that, oops, that really didn't turn out well. But tribal law is about when that shit happens, because it will happen because we're human. What do we do? How do we make it good again? How do we make it so that the our tribe can can you know continue functioning? If you, you know, you steal someone's cow or you sleep, you know, you sleep with someone's wife or you know, how do we do this in such a way that we can continue with living the way we're living? Not to punish you, 
because, you know, it's like, but we need to make sure that we can manage this thing, even though this bad things happen. How can we do that? And it's just such a different uh, way of thinking about it. Whereas in, in Sweden, and I think a lot of the world, it's like, it's the cry for more loss, you know, harder loss, stricter loss, you know, but, but none of that helps us to actually deal with the stuff that we do as humans. Yeah, well, that's, so law is the scaffolding. I think how we behave within the law provides the actual material around it, that we tend to use our laws as retribution. You know, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not. Um, I, I, so there's law, which is the set of rules, and then there's society, which is how the rules are applied and worked within our culture. And I think that's the the tug that you're getting at. The law isn't enough. You, you need a human layer on top of that. In some provincialities, um, the, the judges do that. So you'll you'll always see articles here and there about, oh, this judge is really cool. Instead of sentencing that youth offender to X, he had them, you know, they were helping the landscapers replant the flowers that they plowed through or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that they're yeah. they yeah. use they use the redemption after a, some kind of crime to fill in the hole. <laughs> Yes, yes. Perfect example, actually. Rather than this, no, you need to go to juvenile hall on detention and whatnot for three years. Yeah. To hang out with other youth criminals. That's a great idea. Let's do that. (laughs) Here, let's 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 learn all the new ways you can do some crimes. (laughs) Like, oh yeah. That that must work, right? So there's a difference between retribution and redemption. Yeah. And the call is for retribution. You know, so much of the call is for retribution. That's what I see. That's what I hear. Um, not only, definitely not only, but a lot of it. And uh, sometimes the injury is so grave. You know, we just recently had the trial of the person who put his knee on George Floyd's neck for all that time. And this was a person who was troubled before he encountered George Floyd. Um, I am not in a position to know what redemption is for someone who does that, who has so lost the recognition of humanity and others. Maybe because he lost the recognition for humanity in himself. 
don't know, but you cannot have someone, especially in a position of authority, who thinks that way. That's too dangerous. Yeah, I think it's very common, though. All too common. But I had, again, probably 10 years ago, I was listening to a moth episode. <gasps> the moth.org. Yeah. Love them. I love them too, but I'm so bugged that they do the moth hour and not the, you know, each story. Um, this was back in the days when it was each story. So I, I listened to them all the time on my pod player. It, it's the one with Hector Black is his name. Have you listened to him? Right. So he, it is about forgiveness, I think. His, um, his daughter is murdered. And he becomes friends with her convicted murderer. Oh goodness. And it is, you know, I, I remember, I've, I've listened to it over and over. One time I listened to it in the car which was the dumbest thing. I had to stop because I'm crying, you know, because he is, he's so much heart, Hector Black. He is, he's, he's like, he's so much heart. And he, you know, he has this, in no way is he condoning what this person did. That's not what it's about. But it's done. It can't be undone. And who does Hector Black want to be? And it's just, yeah, it's, it's an amazing uh, episode. And, and Hector Black is an older black gentleman. You know, you can kind of hear that. It's not been the easiest of lives, but just this... humanity somehow you know um in him that just yeah it's it's quite impressive um and and especially given what has happened and how it's happened because it's not a nice murder i don't know if there are any nice murders this isn't one of them um but just hearing him, and I mean, this is, he didn't go up and hug, you know, the murderer the next day and stuff. You know, it's taken time for sure, but, but it's like he's kept, um, he stayed away from the, the retribution side of it. Wow, that is a strong person. Yeah. Yeah, very, very strong. Yeah. There's another uh, moth episode that I also listened to 10, 12 years ago. Um, 
a black nurse that is lives down south, I don't know, you know, Georgia, Alabama, somewhere, who is tasked to be the live-in nurse for an, an older, you know, southern conservative, like, you know, white uh, supremacist. And it is a story again that just blows my mind. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking about um, sort of the, the the situations we're placed in and what we do when we are and that there is a choice. It's not an easy one, but there is a choice. Who do I want to be? Who am I? And this, this nurse, you know, just a professional through and through and a human through and through. Which got through to this person that she was caring for, um, you know, after period of time. It's just, yeah. There's a section, I think it might be in The Gifts of Imperfection, or maybe it's in Daring Greatly. It's one of the Brené Brown books where she comes up with the idea that people are doing the best they can. No matter what they're doing that affects you, in that moment, they're doing the best they can. May not be the best they can access at all times. It may not be the best they have to offer on any given day. But in that moment, they're doing the best they can. So if you respond in that way, it's like, well, if you know, you can say, that guy just said something hor really horrible. But maybe if he's doing the best he can, maybe something really bad happened to him recently. And if that's the best he has to offer, then maybe he needs some help. You know, what can I do? It it does, it's not easy to apply at all times because sometimes somebody will do something and it's like, oh man, that takes me off. Because in that moment, you're doing the best you can. You've got a history, too. Okay. I've used that quite a lot, both when it comes to myself in my role as a parent. It's like I know now things that makes me go, oh, my God. But yes, back then, I did do the best I can. Sometimes the best I can is really shitty, you know. But in the moment, that's what I was capable of. Um, and now that I know better, I do better. Isn't that what my Angelo kind of yeah. says? Um, yeah. But I've also used it in, in with coaching clients quite a lot because it's easy to come and kind of blame the boss or the mom or the spouse or the best friend or the, you know, it's like 
and again, so it's a it's a kind of a it's a way to calibrate, in a sense, you know, against this thing that yes, we are human, because there's nothing in doing the best you can that implies that it's okay what you did, right? So there's no, you know, you you don't have to condone bad acts you know but but the person did what they could do then again it might be some really crappy things yeah but that's where they were at yeah it it does help recalibrate so you know around here it is not unusual to get stuck behind somebody who's driving five minutes five miles below the speed limit in in straddling two lanes so no one can get around them and you're like because <laughs> driving fast is an american thing we love to go it's just like get there quicker and so you have to tell yourself okay i'm stepping back i'm thinking maybe they have somebody i can't see in the front seat that's real precious to them maybe they're carrying a whole basket of eggs and it's about to tip over it's like you don't know the why. <clears throat> you don't. And yeah. And it's the it's it's like I've come a long way when it comes to traffic that I I used to be very American in my way, in that, you know, it's like, wow, what are you doing? And hey, and you a stop. And you know, it's like, hey, you just, you know. Yeah, it's like you, you've got your driving finger. <laughs> Precise, yeah, precisely. It's like, and 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 it's like I've gotten to be so. There's there's a remnant of this life. I very rarely drive anymore because I don't have a car, and I live in a town where biking and walking and public transport just takes me where I need to go, and I bike mostly. But as I bike, I just realized the other day I'm I'm. I'm very Indian in my way when I bike because I, you know, kind of apply the Indian fuzzy logic. You know, traffic rules aren't really about me. It's about the situation. If there's nobody there and it's a stop sign, I don't need to stop the bike. I can just go, right? So I'm, I'm you know, I'm skirting there. But... As I'm doing that, just the other week, I did just that. I, you know, I, I ran a, a, a stop sign and this car comes, waves down. You know, you don't wave down. He presses the button and he, the window goes down and he looks at me and says, didn't you see that that was a stop sign over there? And I'm going, yeah. Um, but it's like, I kind of took that one well. I didn't go all, ah, you know, but that's the reaction I can get is when 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 people try to parent me. <clears throat> you know, I am 48, very soon to be 49, and I'm capable enough. Yes, I sometimes do things that aren't good, clever, safe, you know, yes. Uh, but you don't need to parent me. Um, so people who honk, if I'm, you know, if I have my phone in my hand as I'm biking, 
He's like, ah, what are you? <laughs> I can, I can, I can blow up. And then, you know, seven seconds later, I'm, I'm over it. Um, but for those seven seconds, man, um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. But I, I very rarely try to parent other people. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's just rude, you know? <clears throat> yeah. It's, you don't assume that another adult needs your advice unsolicited. That, yeah. I kind of not done. <laughs> yeah, it's very much done, I would say. It's very much done. Um, and, and, and the interesting question is, would they have done that if it was a, a man? <laughs> very good question. Very good question. Oh, that's just to wrap up. There was this thing I read somewhere years ago how women and men act differently. If you're out walking and you meet somebody and they're coming at you precisely, not on the side of you, but at you precisely, depending on whether or not, you know, your hierarchy, women are much, much more prone to step to the side, step out into the, you know, to the grass on the side of the, of the sidewalk or something. And men are much more prone to just keep on because they know that people will move. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. You know, do I do that first of all? It's like, do I step to, you know, it's like, so I, I live just next to a recreational area and I take a lot of walks. So I started to play with this. Noticing, first of all, my tendency to, yes, I do move so that the other doesn't have to move, regardless if the other is a, a kid or a grown man or a grown woman or an old woman with a dog or, you know, it's like, I move. So whenever I would then meet a man, I was like, I'm not going to move. 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 And, you know, you come closer and closer and closer. And you could see the upset. These men, when they had to move. Because <laughs> I would have walked right into them. You know, because I was not budging. It's so interesting. Like, you know, totally confused. This has never happened to them before. <laughs> what do you mean? I have to move. <laughs> It's like, for a woman, women are supposed to, you know, it's like, oh, it was hilarious. That's a great, that's a great experiment to run. I'm hoping someone who listens to this will, will do that experiment and let me know, regardless if you are male or female or whatever, do that experiment. See what happens. See what you're, what you do yourself. Um, yeah, I know I usually tend to move because I'm short, right? I'm and not I'm even short too. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a short, long thing too. You know. But try it. See what happens. Because um, it's fun. It's, it, you know, it's like, it's fun to, to play with things like that. Um, yeah. So, should we call it, call it a day? We've we been can. going at it for a while. 
But we have. We have. It's been fun. It has been super fun, like always.